arduous journey because hearing about someone's problems for three months, that's not easy to, uh, to take in. But we can learn life lessons from Job. And I hope that some of those lessons have been applicable to you as God allows us to go through the trials of life that we experience. God is there. God loves us. He cares about us. And He wants us to be able to depend upon Him. And Job was certainly, certainly uh, learning about that. And even he had something to learn, even through his deepest trial of life that, that most of any of us have ever experienced. And so we get to Job chapter 38. Would you turn to that chapter, please? We're going to have this week and next week yet, and we will, be, we will be done with Job. But we finally get through all the four friends that Job had, the so-called friends, all their ridicule, all their harshness. And after 34 chapters of painful debate, by the way, if you don't have a handout, would you raise your hand and Kyle will get you one of those? Um, just uh, keep your hand up there. Um, at the end of the last one that we talked about last week's class, he doesn't even address Elihu's um, four speeches from the last six chapters because he's just too weary and it's too painful and all the lectures and the harsh criticisms were just like, it's just too much. I'm, I'm just tired of it. I don't want to listen. I don't want to hear that. I, I believe that I'm right and you guys aren't helping me at all. And so Job might fall back into this self-righteous response. Um, he has stated his case to his friends and he's defended himself rigorously. It's not something I've done. I'm righteous. I'm righteous. God has, has not always you know, taken care of me like he should. And he defended himself against God saying that he wanted to meet God in court. And he wanted to have a trial to find out why God was treating him so harshly and to prove his own innocence and purity. So just by going back and looking at a cursory response from Job, here were some of the things that Job said in preparation for talking about what God is going to address today. He said things like this, I will maintain my own ways before you, God, in Job chapter 13. I have ordered my cause. I know that I shall be justified. Then call thou and let me answer. God, give me a chance to speak. Let me speak, and, and then would you answer me, please, because I want to know what's going on. Wherefore, hidest thou thy face and holdest me for thine enemy? For thou wilt... Thou writest bitter things against me, and you make me to possess the iniquities of my youth. You're holding on to me in, in a negative way, God, and I don't understand it. I want answers. This is sort of, where the, the, sort of the summary of Job's complaints against God. And so from the deepest part of his grief and anguish, he's asking God something like this. Oh, that I knew where I might find you, that I might lay my case before you, and I would fill my mouth with arguments, and I would uh, lean on you, and you would answer me and teach me, and I would understand what you have to say. Would you contend with me in the greatness of your power? No, you would give heed to me. God, where are you? There an upright man could reason with thee, and I would be acquitted before my judge. God, show up. Give me some answers. I can't stand that I'm going through this and I don't know where you are. That's sort of where Job is at the end of all these four speeches from his four friends. So Job wants his day in court with God and God is finally going to be silent no longer. And that's what we get to today. And this is probably the most famous part of Job where we get to the, the first chapter and then the last couple of chapters where God finally says, Okay, Job. Okay, it's time for you and I to have a dialogue. I want to talk to you about, about my relationship with you. 
And so at this point, Job may think that he's made his case. Okay, God, now let's get together and let's talk about this because I think I have a just, a just argument against you for, for putting me through all this. His friends have been out to lunch and they don't have a clue and now God is going to come to his rescue. He's going to support Job and, and Job's righteousness and prove to his friends that they were terribly wrong, right? And so God will lower the gavel and he will declare Job's friends guilty and Job innocent. I think that's what Job is thinking at this point. And so God will take quite a different approach than what Job is thinking. And that's what we're going to study for the next two weeks. God's response to Job, because Job has increased in frustration and, and irritation because of all that his friends have said, and, and God doesn't seem to be answering him or defending him. So now it's God's turn to speak, and God finally weighs in with Job. And so in your notes, class, he speaks from a whirlwind. Look at chapter 38 and verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Now, now I just want you to think about a whirlwind. What, what, do, we, what do you think about when you think about a whirlwind? What's, what's the picture in your mind? Yes. A, like a tornado. Is what you going to say, Joe? Like, like a dust devil, a swirling. Is that a, is that a gentle thing? <clears throat> is a whirlwind just a gentle, soft, you know, nice little tropical breeze coming through on the beach? Not hardly, right? No, a whirlwind's a whirlwind. And, you know, you picture a whirlwind, you think about, man, there's power there. There's, there's a tempest is, a, is another word to describe it. And so God says, I'm going to present myself to Job, not with just this, like he did with Elijah, this still small voice. He says, I'm going to come in a big way to Job because I want Job to understand me. There's some things Job missed in all of this when he started defending himself so much, and so I need to really do that. The whirlwind is it's a ferocious storm. Think of it as a Cat 5 tornado or a powerful hurricane. Um, it wasn't gentleness in fair skies. It's ominous. It's powerful, as you can see here. And as we've had most recently and across the country, all these places that have gotten hit with storms and tornadoes, you see the devastation of it afterwards. Imagine that power is right now descending on Job. But it's God in that storm. And he's getting Job's attention to say, Job, it's now me. We're going to talk. And has this dialogue. It was mysterious. It was an awesome display of God's power. And was God saying by meeting with Job in a storm, Hey Job, you don't know me as well as you think you do. My ways are past finding out. We have a few things that we need to clear up, Job. And so Job sort of needed an attitude adjustment after coming through all that he had. And... Um, and he needed that towards God and towards his perspective of his own trials. And so God uses this whirlwind in an appropriate venue to get his point across. It certainly got Job's attention, as you could imagine. And it's not unusual for God to use storms, by the way, class, to teach lessons. And in your notes there, I think, um, you know, we, we have that. Moses, if you remember, up on top of Mount Sinai, God showed up with thunderclaps and, 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 uh, and storms and wind and, and earthquake and breaking rocks when God descended upon the top of Mount Sinai when he was given the, the commandments. 
And he was up there for 40 days and God's power and all the people from, from the children of Israel looked up and they saw the cloud coming down. God was displaying his power. So that wasn't a unique thing that Job was seeing. It was back then because Job predated this, but God uses storms. He uses his power like that to display it through thunders and lightnings and thick clouds. His, his omnipotence over his creation. Elijah in the mountain of God, though he didn't speak but yet in a still small voice, it says that God showed an earthquake and broke the rocks before he spoke in a still small voice. So he was getting Elijah's attention. Jonah, if you remember Jonah, he ran from God and God used a great storm or a tempest to get Jonah's attention. What are you doing, Jonah? You're going the wrong way. And so he also, if you remember a couple times, they were in a storm on the Sea of Galilee where Jesus had to say, peace be still. And then one time, because the, Israel, the, the, the disciples did not get Jesus' message about feeding the 5,000, he had to send them out in the storm in Matthew chapter 14. Remember that story? And Jesus comes walking on the water, but they thought they were going to die. It was a terrible storm on the Sea of Galilee. But, but Jesus had ordained that storm to teach his disciples a lesson of dependence upon him. So it wasn't a unique thing at all. This was God saying, it's time we have a little chat, Job. And, and he's going to display his power and his majesty and his authority over his beloved you know, servant, Job. So <clears throat> it was meant to bring Job to a place of humility, uh, to develop in him a sense of awe of God, because before he's thinking, I want a court date with God. I want to be able to make my argument and make my plea and present my cause. And I want him to listen. And so Job, or God did not respond through all of Job's arguments to his friends, but now he is finally going to show up. And so it was to help Job to learn to trust God in all situations. It was a reprimand and was meant to redirect Job's mindset from self-justification because that's what his friends were accusing him of, and Job was doing that. From self-justification ultimately to self-abhorrence. Imagine that. What a change. At the beginning before God shows up, well, God, let, let's talk because I, I, just, I just need you to give me some answers here. To when God is halfway through the first part that we're going to talk about today, we remember Job's response, and it was one of brokenness and humility. And the Bible even says, Job says, I'm vile. I'm vile. We'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But wow, what a, what a change of attitude Job would have because God's magnificent. He shows up in a huge way. So in this passage here, God is called the Lord. For the first time, class, way back since the beginning in Job chapter 1 and 2, except for, um, in your notes, I think I put, except for chapter 12 and verse 9, God is called the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. That's Jehovah. He's now coming at his righteous and full name, the I am that I am, the self-existent one, the powerful God. It emphasizes his covenant relationship with his people, Warren Wiersbe says. So he's now going to begin to question Job to remind Job that he's way more awesome than what Job can even begin to comprehend. And he needed to do that again since Job was trying to justify himself and proclaim that he really knew God. God's going to say, Job, you, you, you really don't know all about me. Let, me. 
let me bring you up to speed a little bit. <laughs> and so that's what's happening here in chapter 38, 39, 40, and 41. And so he interrogates Job with 77 questions. Have you ever been interrogated by your parents? They were angry. They sat you down and said, why did you do this? Where were you? What happened? And what's going on? That can be very intimidating. Parents, did you ever have to do that with your kids? Raise your hand if you had to interrogate your kids. Yeah, we have all done it, right? And, and you can see, you know, the, the intimidation, the fright on their face. Imagine Job now, God answering in an in a unbelievable, powerful way. Unbelievably powerful way. And that's what's going on. He's, he's, he's rapid fire answering 77 questions. Boom, 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 boom. And Job's like, pff, pff. I, he, he couldn't even grasp one question when God's hitting him with another question and another question and another. And that's how this, it's not really a dialogue. It's God just interrogating Job with these things. And so I want you to consider the areas of questioning uh, and notice what God did not do in his opening dialogue with Job. Okay, he could have went in a lot of different directions, class, but there in your notes, I think I put these in there. God did not answer any of Job's questions. When Job was asking through all those 35, 36 other chapters, 37 other chapters, God did not start to, okay, Job, let me answer this for you. Let me talk to you about this. Let me tell you why I did that. He's not answering his question. Second, he did not give reasons why Job suffered. He didn't sit him down and say, now, Job, let me just talk to you about my decision to allow you to go through this. God doesn't answer him in that way. Is that curious to you? He did not answer Job to satisfy all of Job's questions of why, why, why. And class, I think sometimes for us, it's when we have issues that happen in our life that we feel are just, oh, man, that's not fair. Why did that happen? Or, Lord, what are you doing here? We, in our mind, ask why. God didn't answer why for Job, and he's not required to give us a why. He wants us to trust by faith and let him be God. And if he chooses to give an answer to our why that we can know more, great. But in the meantime, it's just because this is my, this is my will. And I want you to see that I make no mistakes. And you can trust me. You can trust me through this trial. Just trust me. Because if we know why, then we would miss the purpose for faith. Just believing without fully knowing. Believing without fully understanding. Okay, Lord, I'm not sure why you're allowing me to get through this. But help me to be a good learner. And I want to trust you implicitly. And so God doesn't answer Job why. Number three, he did not comfort or apologize to Job. That's interesting too because God is a great God of compassion and mercy and tenderness and love and kindness. But he, he didn't comfort Job at this moment nor apologize to Job for what happened. He didn't explain to Job about his conversation with Satan in heaven that prompted this whole ordeal. He did not go back and say, well, let me tell you what happened back, you know, a number of months ago when this all got started, when you lost your family and all. I had a conversation with Satan in heaven, and here's how that went. He did not offer any of that information to Job. His 
response was just that he simply stated a very firm question that indicted Job and revealed the truth about Job himself. And so look at it in verse 2. Chapter 38, verse 2. I'll start in 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Class, what would your interpretation of that be? What, was, what did God just tell Job in responding that way? How would you, how would you read that? Yes, ma'am. Joanna? You don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Like, you're clueless? Would we say you're clueless? Yes, ma'am. That's what I was going to say. You don't even have a clue, Joe. Don't even have a clue. Somebody who? who anybody else? You all agree? Cluelessness? Like, who would answer and think they have the right answer without even having a, a thimble full of information or knowledge that would accurately depict what I'm, what I'm doing in your life, Job? Who is he that darkeneth or distorts counsel by words without knowledge? Job, you're speaking of things which you know nothing of. In other words, why are you using your ignorance to deny my providence and power? Darkeneth means to distort or place something in a wrong or false light. Job, you're placing what I did in a wrong light. You're not seeing it accurately. Job is completely oblivious in chapter 1 and 2 of Job. He doesn't know what's happening, so he's forming opinions without knowing what happened before and for God's plan for the future, that he's going to restore Job and give him double. He doesn't, of course, know any of that at this point. And so he's telling Job, look, look at verse 3. Gird up now the loins, thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee and answer thou me. What's God saying there, class? What's, what would we say when he's saying, gird up your loins, Job, And be a man, because I'm going to demand of you, and I want you to answer me. What, what's God saying there? How would, you, what, how would you interpret that? Yes, sir. Time to go to work. What's that? Time to go to work. Time to go to work. We got some things to cover. Yes, Patrick. Sit down, shut up, hang on, and hold tight. <laughs> Sit down, shut up, hang on, and hold tight. Honey? Put your big boy pants on. <laughs> <laughs> we must be married, because I put that in my notes exactly. <laughs> We did not confer here. That's exactly, she did write those notes, I guess. You snuck them in there. That's exactly what I wrote. Put your big boy pants on, Job, for I'm going to demand answers from you to some very hard questions. That's the right answer, honey. Boy, she's good, isn't she? I'll tell you what. I taught her everything she knows, of course. That's right. Job, gird up your loins, gird up your loins, because I'm going to, we're going, to have a, we're going to have a discussion. And you need to strap in because I'm going, to, I'm going to teach you some stuff that you have no clue about. Nothing at all. Yes, sir. He's turning the tables on him as well. He says, I'm going to be asking the questions now, and you're going to be answering. Yeah, right. That's right. That's good. I've heard all your stuff down there, and I've heard all your friends, and your friends aren't right either. But it's time that we come to reckoning here so that I can use you in the future as my choice servant and you're only going to be that much more, uh, you're that cl much closer to me because of what you learned today. And so, yeah, that's how it starts. 
Yes, sir. Well, remember in Job chapter 1, God and Satan, Satan presents himself before the Lord with all the other angels. And he says, oh, where have you been, Satan? He goes, I've been throughout the earth, you know, doing this and that and, and, and running up and to and fro in it. Have you and God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there's none righteous? Remember back to Job chapter 1. There's none like my servant Job. He's righteous in all the earth, perfect and upright, eschews evil. And, and walks with me. Yeah, but if you took you know, things from him, he'd curse you to your face. And so God says, you, have, you can have your way with him. That's back to Job chapter 1 and chapter 2. Job remains faithful. But that was the dialogue that was happening between God and Satan in heaven that God didn't even address here. He's just going to talk to Job directly. And that's what's going to happen. And so, <clears throat> yeah, let's get to it. And so four areas that God is going to question him. And let me just give you these quickly. Number one, God's power over the non-living universe. That's chapter 38, most of that chapter. God's power over the non-living universe class. You got, there's so many interesting things here. It's amazing. And then God's power over the living creatures on earth. The non-living things, the phenomena of earth and creation and the world, the universe... And then the animal creatures and things on earth, the living beings. And then he's going to talk about God's superiority to man in chapter 40. That's not going to be today, by the way. We're going to cover that next week. And then God's power in creating two magnificent animals. He gives chapters to Behemoth and Leviathan in his answers. And we'll cover that next week as well. So we're going to cover the first two today. His power over non-living, the non-living universe and God's power over the living creatures of the earth. We want to get through chapter 38 and 39 this morning. So, we're talk, he'll talk next week about the behemoth and the leviathan. And so first of all, God's power over the non-living universe. Chapter 38, really four through almost the rest of the chapter. He's talking, in, in your notes there, he's talking about in creating the earth. God's power in creating the earth is first. See, class, Job wasn't there. There's the earth. We can now see it from the moon. We have it from other orbit satellites and other, other means where we can see what this earth looks like. But Job, he wasn't there. He could have no clue about God and how he made the universe. And so Job begins to ask him, what holds the universe up? Verse 4, where were you, Job? Where wast thou when, when thou I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare it if thou hast understanding. Right there, Job is, has to stop in his tracks. Oh, I, I, I don't have a clue how you made the earth. I, the earth? I, that's massive. I, I can't even comprehend. I can look out and see the stars, and I don't know how far they are away, but God, I don't know, I don't know that. And so Job just, or God just starts with these, these things. Where are the, its foundations attached to? Keep reading. Who laid the measures thereof, verse 5, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? God's talking about his earth. He's talking about who measured the solar system. Who measured the planets that orbit around the sun? Or the planetary system, the solar system, the Milky Way galaxy, or how about within the universe? Job, do you know anything about that? 
Do you know what's holding up the earth right now? Have you seen its pillars? These were meant to immediately bring Job down to size and show him how truly insignificant and uninformed Job was, right from the very outset. So God says the earth has foundations in verse 4 and 6 that we just read. He measured it and he placed it in the solar system class with precise coordinates. And, and we could spend days, I'm not a scientist, but if you look up the science of it, you could spend days just talking about the earth and it's hanging in space on nothing. What keeps it there? You know, when we think about this, this building have a foundation. Yeah, it's got the footers and it's got a foundation. It's laid upon solid bedrock and it's, and it's firm and stable. Well, here's the earth. There's nothing under it. It doesn't have pillars under it. It's not in sockets and it's not fastened to anything. And yet it stays in its perfect course, its perfect place. He's saying how... God says the earth has foundations and he measured it and placed it in the solar system with these precise coordinates so that everything operates in exact order as indicator of his marvelous design. We know that the earth is 93 million miles away from the sun and it has to be that precise distance because we've learned before that anywhere closer, if you move the whole earth closer, then it would burn up. Or if you move it far away, we would, we would freeze uh, to death. And so they rested, these foundations rested upon nothing, yet the earth is firmly in its place, in its planetary orbit around the sun. And so while it's spinning at a thousand miles an hour at the surface, it's moving around the sun in its elliptical orbit, perfectly in sync with all the other planets of the sun. And God just put them in place, not just throwing them out there to say, well, I don't know how this is going to work, but he tilted the earth at 23 degrees so we have the tides and all that type of thing. Job could have no clue about that. We're only learning about that in modern day science. Um, he made the planets to remain in their specific places. And this had to occur because he put the sun that far away with its heat to be able to hit the earth 93 million miles away to sustain life on earth with the exact right temperature, the exact atmospheric pressure, the exact gravity levels and light and darkness and water and mixture of gases to make breathable air in our atmosphere to sustain life. God did all of that in putting the earth right where it was and tilting it and spinning it and orbiting it around a sun that's a certain size with a certain level of heat produced from it that would sustain life here on earth, not the other planets. And so Job could know nothing about that. So earth remains in its place as it rotates and orbits around the sun while spinning, without spinning into outer space. Who does that? How could that happen? Even the gravitational forces, God designed all that. God says it has a cornerstone and a foundation that is fastened and unmovable, but yet it's placed on nothing. There is no cornerstone to hold it in place. And God is saying that to Job. Job was completely out of his league in the first two verses of God describing this to Job. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations there? Can you describe the foundations of the earth? What do they look like? And so he continues on in verse 7. He says, When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. 
Now, I've read Job numerous times throughout my Christian life, but I've never really stopped and thought about that verse. But the study of this lesson caused me to stop and think about that verse and, and study it and look more at it. Once again, verse 7, When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Any idea what, what's God talking about there? What would you think he's talking about there? When, all the mor when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Who's he talking about and what's involved right there? Any ideas? Yeah, we're like Job, right? I don't have a clue. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Amazing. It's just amazing. And I want you to know that. As we think about this, it's amazing. Listen to this. Now we have to do modern day research class, and this research is right up to date. I was, I was studying this out, and there's, a, there's an article by Elizabeth Landau, NASA's Exoplanet Exploration Program is who she's with. We can't hear it with our ears, but the stars in the sky are performing a concert, one that never stops. Let me read it again. When the morning stars sang together. Job couldn't know that. We didn't know this till 2018. Last year. The biggest, uh, uh, the biggest stars make the lowest, deepest sounds. Like tubas and double basses. Small stars have high-pitched voices like celestial flutes. These virtuosos don't just play one note at a time either. Our own sun has thousands of different sound waves bouncing around inside it at any given moment. Understanding these stellar harmonies represents a revolution in astronomy. By listening for stellar sound waves with telescopes, scientists can figure out what stars are made of, how old they are, how big they are, and how they contribute to the, the, the development of our Milky Way galaxy as a whole. The technique is called astroseismology, listening to the sounds of the stars. When the morning stars sang together in verse 7. Job doesn't have a clue. We didn't have a clue. I didn't understand this. Just as earthquakes or earth seismic waves tell us about the inside of the earth, stellar waves resulting in vibrations or star quakes reveal the secret inner workings of stars. NASA's Kepler Space Te Telescope, now approaching the end of its mission, has been a key player in that revolution, delivering observations of waves in tens of thousands of stars since 2009 launch. NASA's trans trans uh, transiting exoplanet survey satellite called TESS, T-E-S-S, which launched in April 2018, just a year ago, may observe sound waves in up to one million red giants the massive evolved stars that represent what our sun will look like in about five billion years. So, so they're getting into evolution, which we don't agree with. But some information coming back to us. While both Kepler and Tess are most famous for hunting for planets beyond our solar system, they are also powerful, sensitive tools for detecting stellar vibrations. And the more we know about stars, the more we know about planets and that orbit them. And so, folks, that was an article from July 2018 that they're reporting back what they're learning already about the, the stars ringing out and singing out with a symphony of sounds. 
So God determined that from the beginning of creation, and he declared the shouting of stars way back in 2000 B.C., as we're learning here when, with Job. Can you imagine what God would hear? If we could hear with our ears those sounds, the symphony of music being played by God's creation. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Job, you don't know what you're talking about. You have no clue about these things, and we're just learning about them right now. Class, can we agree God is awesome? Amen. Amen. He's awesome. Yes, Dave. Yeah, I hadn't heard that. Is that news out there now? No, I'm just saying, I'm waiting oh, oh, waiting for that to happen. Okay. Yeah, we're going to get a Martian visit here before too long, right? Hey, we, we, we don't see any life on any other planet. If God wants us to know it, He'll reveal it. But God is the giver of that, right? He's the author of all that. We leave that with God. And so we're only now, class, catching up with God's magnificence through our advanced scientific discoveries. Science is on God's side. Amen. He created it. And so the more that we learn through the microscope and the telescope, the more we can see the magnificence and the glory of God. And that ought to excite us. The second thing there in verse 7, it says, And all the sons of God shouted for joy. So we got the stars shouting for joy. Most commentators believe that the sons of God referred to here are the heavenly host of angels, supernatural beings in a hierarchy of angelic power that were created to bring glory and honor and praise to God. And so there were an undisclosed number of splendid beings shouting praise to God as he was creating this myriad of stars. And they're bowing down and saying, glory to God, glory to God. Where were you, Job, when I was laying you know, this constellation and that constellation and I formed that galaxy and that galaxy? And by the way, class, they're, they're, they're looking deep into it. There's a video I showed to the men last summer that shows that our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, has about a trillion stars in it, a trillion stars. And there are a trillion galaxies like the Milky Way. Ours is a smaller one. So a trillion times a trillion is what number that God put out there in the stars in the universe. And the angels of God bow when he just throws them out there in an organized way. He laid them out like a blanket, the Bible says. And so he controls every movement of every star, the brightness, the gases, and he hears them. He created them to sing and to make noise and give, give praise to his name, as well as the angels he created. They're praising God when he, they see him creating all this wonderment in massive galactical form. It's like overwhelming for our puny brains to take in. When you think about the size and the magnitude and the awesomeness of space, it's really overwhelming to us, and it was certainly overwhelming to Job. And we can't miss that. So they were, he suspended the trillions of stars in the universe, and the Bible says in Psalm 104:2, he hung them like a curtain. A curtain is not random, all bunched up. A curtain is, is organized. And that's what God did. He put them in perfect place, in perfect harmony. And so next, he talks about the sea in verses 8 through 11. 
In creating the limiting sea, Job begin, or God questions Job about the sea. The sea is described as, as being shut up and then broke forth. Verse 8. Or who shut up the sea with doors when it broke forth as if it had issues, as if it had issued out of the womb? When I made the cloud, the garment thereof, and the thick darkness, and a swaddling band for it, and broke up for it my decreed place, and set bars and doors, and said, Hitherto shalt thou come, but no further, and here shall thy proud waves be stayed. In other words, he's talking about the sea as almost like giving birth. I'm going to bring forth the oceans. And, and so you can picture a class. Remember when God broke up the deep when he flooded the earth. It says the deep broke up. So inside the earth, there must have been this massive cavern of water and began to bellow up and fill the earth from the inside as well as the canopy of the cloud on the outside pouring down rain to flood the earth. God says, Joe, where were you when all that happened? And I opened up the doors of the ocean floor and let all this water from inside the earth come out. We know today that there are thermal fissures in the earth that, that release gas and pressure and water springs from underneath the, the, uh, the ocean floor that do this. But God even controls that. Things that we can't see. God controls those, those issues. And it says, Who gave it size and shape and dimensions to the sea? It had bars and doors holding it in place until God allowed the fountains to break up, Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, as well as from the skies. He set boundaries upon the sea, the Bible says, to how far it could spread onto firm soil. It's going to come this far and no further. It's not going to overtake the mountains and the earth. Only in that flood one time did that happen, but no more. I've set boundaries upon it. I control the water levels of my creation even. And so he talks about the proud waves uh, he says there, verse 11, And said, Hitherto shalt thou come no further, and here shall thy proud waves be stayed. Folks, you think about the power and majesty of a wave and, the, and, and, and what that is. And God says, they can only come so far. And I even control that because they can be intimidating. They can be thunderous and powerful, but I have it all under control. Job. And so he controls, in your notes there, he controls the sunlight over the earth. And, and we could talk about that on and on again, but, but you just think about when the sun comes up and its rays hit the earth and the rays bake the, they, they give, give sunlight to, for the chlorophyll to fill and produce food for the plants. And it also hardens the clay, but softens the wax at the same time. And so God's sun, he controls the day-to-day -day function of the sun and its cycle and, and how we get our seasons and how we get our years and, and how dependent we are on the sun for everything. God says, I control that. Can you touch the sun? He talks about that in verses 12 through 15. Then he talks about the vast dimensions of creation. Class, a child today knows more about the heights and the depths of the earth than Job did that he knew in his day. How many of you are familiar with the Marianas Trench? Anybody know about that? Yeah, a number of you. What is the Mariana Trench? Yes. It's the um, deepest part of the sea near the Philippines. Yes, it's over by the Philippines off the Japanese coastline in the Pacific Rim. And it is super, super deep. 
God controls His creation. Uh, the Marianas Trench in the Pacific Ocean is the deepest place on Earth. And so over here is Japan, and it's off that coast, the Philippines over here. Um, the Titanic is at about 12,000 feet. Mount Everest is 29,035 feet. That would come to right there. And then the Marianas Trench drops down to 36,000 feet. That would be, what, 7,000 feet over Everest. That's over a mile above Everest to the top of Everest. You could sink Everest down into the sea and still have a mile of water left above it. In the deepest part of the ocean, God is there and he controls it. And to the tops of the peaks of Everest at 29,000 feet. Did you see that just this week? Um, more and more people are going to Everest to climb it and they're getting, getting stuck because there's so many people. They have, what, 300 and some odd uh, uh, licenses that they've given out. And now they're all having to climb it in May. And they get stuck on the, on the summit going up. And then on the way back down, they run out of oxygen or they can't handle it. And they're dying up there. 11 people have died so far already this year wanting to climb Everest. That's just in the news this past week. It gives us power to think that we could subdue the earth. And yet people give their lives for that goal. No human being has been to the bottom of the sea. God asks Job, do you ever walk on the depths of the sea or visit the gates of hell and death? Where are the gates of hell, Job? Do you know where they are? Can you take me to the gates of hell where, where hell is located? I control that. Even hell. Where there's a great gulf fixed between heaven and hell. That dark, deep place. Job, can you, can you give me a road map to get there? Where does light dwell? Verse 19, he says. Where is the way where light dwelleth? And as for darkness, where is the place thereof? Has Job or anyone been to the deepest parts of the universe? No, we haven't. Not even close. Can I give you just a little bit of information about that? So the Voyager, how many are familiar with Voyager 1 and Voyager 2? Those are those um, spacecraft that have gone out collecting data, sending pictures back to us. Let me just give you a little bit of information about that. Voyager 1 and 2 were launched in September 1977. They've been traveling into space now for 42 years, and they've traveled over 14 billion miles at a speed of, are you ready for this? They're traveling at a speed of 39,600 miles per hour every second. No, I'm sorry, every hour, 39,000 miles per hour. But that's nothing compared to how far it must travel to reach the closest star to our solar system. So since 1977, 39,000 miles an hour, They've gotten 14 billion miles away. Do you know how long it's going to take those things to get to the closest star in our solar system? The very closest one. It's 4.2 light years away. Do you know how many years it's going to take for that, that thing to get there? 39,600 miles an hour. You ready? 40,000 years. 40,000 years at 39,600 miles an hour for them to get to the closest star in our own solar system. Now we got our galaxy, the Milky Way. Think about going across that with trillions of stars. And then beyond that, you got trillions of galaxies. It boggles your mind. You can't think that. How could it be? 
And God is revealing this to Job. Job, you don't have a clue. You don't understand what I've created and what's out there. And they all sing. All those stars, look at them. All singing, all singing, sending sound waves to God, glorifying God with their, with their sound waves. It's amazing. It's amazing. The closest star is 25 trillion miles away. 4.3 light years. In verses 31 to 33, God briefly mentions the constellations of the starry universe. Look at verse 31. Canst thou bind the sweet influence of Pleiades or loose the bands of Orion? Canst thou bring forth Maseroth? Many believe that is the, the zodiac, the 12 signs, the constellations of the zodiac in his season. Or canst thou guide Arcturus with his sons? And so Pleiades is a cluster of seven stars. And God has asked Job if he could stop the pleasurable appearance of this star cluster that was known to bring happiness to his viewers in the springtime, even back in Job's days, because they observed these things. Orion is located on the celestial equator and is one of the most prominent and recognizable constellations in the sky and can be seen throughout the world. The bands of its belt are the most prominent stars in the constellation. God was asking Job, Hey Job, can you move those stars a little bit? Can you, can you move them around and arrange them for me? And they're light years away. Light year is 186,000 miles a second times 60 seconds times 24 hours in a day times 365 days in a year. That's a lot of miles in a year. And these are light years away. And so uh, he says, can you move those out of place? Maseroth represents the 12 signs of the zodiac and the 12 constellations. And God challenged Job to move the stars around in their seasons to let them appear perfectly in the night sky. Arcturus means the guardian of the bear and is one of the bright stars in the ancient constellation Boots, also called the great bear constellation or Ursa Minor in the, modern, or the northern sky. God was asking Job, can you guide the great bear with her sons, the smaller stars that are unseen throughout the universe? Do you have power to control the stellar movements, Job? Can you help me out with that? And obviously, what can Job even answer? Uh, nothing. Beyond that, he talks about weather and storm patterns in verses 22 through 30 and 34 through 37. Job provides a clear description of many aspects of the water cycle. The evaporation, the condensation, the precipitation, and the, for, uh, the formation of clouds. And other books, by the way, in Scripture provide that information as well. Learning about the cycle of the water from the sea to the land and up above, and it, and it rains and condes uh, condenses and rains and then fills the earth and evaporates back up again and cycles back through. We understand that today. Job didn't have an understanding, a full understanding of that with precipitation and infiltration and the release of groundwater through, through the springs, dew and rainwater, floods in the desert streams, as well as cloud movement and the ongoing nature of such things talked about in Ecclesiastes and Isaiah and Deuteronomy and Genesis and Psalms. The Bible goes well beyond a list of the components of the water cycle. In addition to these concepts, the Bible notes that they are linked by laws and the processes is cyclic. And that's what he's saying here, verse 33. Knowest thou the ordinances of heaven, the cycles of heaven? Canst thou set the dominion thereof in the earth? I've set these cycles in order. Job, can you describe those to me? How it all functions and works together. 
And so they're the natural laws of God. Just Job kind of, or God throws out to Job real quick. Can you, can you give me an understanding of the natural laws? The laws of thermodynamics, the laws of gravity, all these things. Job, can you help me out with that? Job was totally unable to create the natural laws or even understand them. And so then God gives, talks about his power over the animals of the field. And, and just briefly, he talks about the, the six animals on the earth, the lion, the deer, the wild ox, the wild goat, the wild donkey, and the horse. And each has his own purpose. Each has a different lifestyle. Each has a different size and ability and strength, and it's unique in its abilities and its creative function. And so Job begins, or God begins to talk to Job about those things. Job, you know where the wild animals live or how their instincts protects them or why some could be used to help for labor man and the others could not be tamed. I control all the animals, every last animal, right down to where they go, where they live, and who provides them food, the herbivore and the carnivore. He taught the wild donkey how to take care of itself in the wild and so forth. And so he talks about animals. And he talks about the, uh, the birds of size, uh, large size, there in your notes, letter B. He picked out five unique birds to challenge Job's wisdom and knowledge. The raven, the peacock, the ostrich, the hawk, and the eagle. And he talks about the ostrich, saying he puts his, his eggs in the ground for man to come and step on him, or an animal to come and step on him, and then he leaves him alone and forgets where he puts him. He says, I haven't given any wisdom and understanding to an ostrich. In other words, I've made an ostrich purposely stupid. <laughs> Just for my glory and my power. They don't have a clue. And so he's talking about that to Job. Did you know that? And then the eagle and the hawk who, who hover above their prey and, and perch on rocks and, and high high cliffs and on trees and swoop down and capture their prey. And so after this first round of questioning, God ended with a strong rebuke of Job. And Job's first response to this strong rebuke. Look over at um, look over chapter four, 40. He says, Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God let him answer it. Since you're so high and mighty, Job, in your own estimation, and you think that you know me so well, can you answer these questions? Job, do you have, do you have any answers for me? Do you really want to see me in court? Do you want to have this debate? you want to state your cause? Do you want to contend with me? And then Job gives his answer class. These are underlined verses in my Bible, verse 3 through 5. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. Now just think about that for a second. He's saying this. I am totally insignificant and unworthy. I have no right to debate with such an awesome being as you, Jehovah. You have overwhelmed me. You have reduced me to a sniveling fool. I am disgusted with myself to even think that I could approach your greatness. That's where Job comes. He says, I, me personally, am vile. Oh my word, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? I'm nobody compared to you, God. You are awesome. That's the first step, class, for accomplishment in our life when we allow God to be big and us to be small. Is that true? 
God's big and we're small. When we get that, then we can really get the blessing of God and the understanding of God. Because he says, I will humble the proud and I will exalt the humble. That's God's plan. And, and he's teaching us that from Job. He wants us to know that. He says, second, what can I possibly say in verse 4? Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. There are no words I could utter that can begin to possibly defend myself knowing that what I know now. I decline my case. I will sit down. Job realized he had absolutely no argument for what he had gone through, even though it was great, he was completely outmatched. I don't even know what to say. And then finally, once have I spoken, verse 5, but I will not answer, yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. I will shut my mouth and keep quiet. And someone said that in here this morning. Just sit down, shut up, keep quiet. That's in essence what Job was saying. The only thing left for Job to do would be to back down, go to his corner, and keep completely quiet. It was complete surrender to a power and a being far, far, far superior to him. Now, class, it goes against our culture, our pop culture, to reduce ourselves and to humble ourselves because our society today is saying, you go and you defend yourself, and you go and you get yourself, and you don't let anyone dominate you, and so on and so forth. Now, we don't have to be taken advantage of as a people. But at the same time, God doesn't want us to strut our stuff and think that we're somebody and make it like we have to be somebody on this planet to, to be significant to God or to do something great for God. Let's keep in mind that God says, I will, he, I will resist the proud, but give grace to the humble. The answer for the blessing of God and the goodness of God and the grace of God in our lives is for our humility before Him, not proclaiming our own greatness. That's what the world does. And God doesn't want us to have that attitude. He wants us to say, be still and know that I am God. I just have a quick question in looking at all of this. Do you think that because Job basically said, bring it on, God, let's go to court, do you think that that's why God didn't answer a lot of his questions? Because he did, at the end, he tended to get... Like you said, he started to kind of exalt it himself. He got more, you know, I don't know, I don't yes, want to be I arrogant, but he, but he in his human questioned his authority. Yeah, I think so. I think in his human reaction to all the negativity that his friends heaped upon him, he was having more and more of the feeling, I've got to defend myself, I've got to defend myself. Lord, why? T take care of these friends for me because they've been just ripping me to shreds. Lord, you're on my side, right? Defend me. And God said, well, wait a second, Job. I, I need to show you some other things because your attitude is not completely right. Well, that was, it. yes, yes, so, in, in a still small voice. He was beaten down. He was discouraged, wanted to die. And God still showed up in a powerful way. He yeah. cracked the rocks and the wind and the storm and the fire. But God ultimately showed up in a still small voice. Here, God with Job is saying, look, I want you to get my power, Job. And so here's a spiritual growth assignment for us, class. Very simple. Follow 1 Peter 5, B and 6. For God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, do what class? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. That's His time.
we can learn from Job, can't we? And we're going to see the rest of the story next week in the conclusion to Job. So make sure you're back. You're not going to want to miss it. What an awesome story. What an awesome display of God's power. Let's walk in humility this week. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for the wonderful word of God. Thank you for your awesome power. We are humbled at your greatness, and we're barely able to scratch the surface. Thank you for each one in this class. Help us, Lord, to uh, be faithful to you, be humble before you, and would you bless us with your power as we seek to turn our lives completely over to you. Thank you for the privilege of learning these things from your word today. Bless us this week in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week, guys. I have been terribly busy. I figured you were busy. You had your daughter helping. Lots of stuff going on. Yeah, just church stuff. Yes. Was it looking for some help or something in particular?